May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Kook Archive podcast. I'm DC Poobah of Kook Archives and Kook Audio. Preserving the legacy of Shunju Suzuki and those whose paths cross his and anything else that comes to mind. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So today we have part two of the uh, phone chat with uh, Peter Vandersteer. And uh, yeah, Peter and I really got carried away. We talked three and a half hours. So last week it was like, I don't know, two hours and 15 minutes. I, I don't know. It was lit. Maybe it was an hour and a half. And this week, it's about an hour. Uh, I cut a lot out. I got carried away, uh, which I tend to do. Uh, but um, anyway, it's pretty neat. So um, here we go again with uh, Peter Vandister, um, who's got the, um, I should say, the uh, Oak Street uh, Zendo in San Francisco and the 7th Street Zendo in Boise, Idaho. And um, those are oakstreetzendo.org is the website. And, um, you know, um, he. if you want to know more about him, you can hear the first one if you haven't heard it, you know. Uh, he first came. To, uh, he came to Silkoji and heard Suzuki give a talk long ago and then came back later uh, and uh, was a student and had a lot of interesting uh, adventures along the way. And so um, here we go. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, whenever Mel's, you know, book, the... the, the uh, how should I say, the, the, the next thing after uh, The Path Unfolding, which I thought was a great little thing that Sue Moon did, basically an interview. Did yeah. you ever see that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'll be interested in, in catching up with uh, whatever Mel has to report on. He was working on two books and okay. at the end of his life. And, you know, he was talking mm-hmm. to me about them. One was... His uh, light edits of a group of Suzuki lectures. And the other was more autobiographical and uh-huh. uh, very frank opinions about, you know, things like Richard Baker, who he was never a fan of. And, <laughs> and, uh, uh, well, it is, it is amazing to me that you've been able to maintain a connection and a kind of a positive take, you know, on Richard because, you know, his, his cruelty at various stages of the game uh, were staggering to me anyway. And I had to at one point say to him, you know, I really have no affection for you. Ah. And he just, you know, he had, he handled it, you know, but I never felt, I never felt any particular investment. Now, maybe I'm not necessarily, I don't feel much of an investment in a sense from Norman which is to say, whether I come or go, I don't think it, he's going to lose any sleep over. But I do feel a uh, very clearly a a sense of responsibility. In other words, I feel like Norman has done a very a yeoman job 
of providing, you know, entree and possibility and, and inclusion in every day and the kind of whatever he, whatever was his creation, I, I always felt, you know, supported and included. Whereas mm-hmm. with Richard, you know, I just felt like I was part of the, you know, I, I happened to be a passenger on the bus that he was driving and uh, it was quite a ride and um, uh, all things considered, I benefited in many ways and we all did. So yeah, good for that. Good for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And he's kept, kept on and created other, uh, other possibilities for people that will continue. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the Mel's books, uh, he has, there's deals for both of them with uh, counterpoint press. So, uh, I just had to cut out a bunch of stuff we were talking about. But at this point, I ask him uh, what he thinks about climate change. Yeah, well, you know, we've had, we've had, um, uh, how should I say, environmental collapses uh, of greater magnitude in, 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 in eons past. Um, so, uh, you know, and the earth has been warmer, uh, than it is now by a good measure in ages past. Yeah. Whether, you know, the humans will survive the oncoming changes. There's an interesting question, but you know, that's, uh, that's a very positive view. What you've got. Yeah. Well, I I mean, that's that's optimistic. You're, you're an optimist. Part of your job, David, is to be optimistic, not (laughs) dumb. (laughs) <laughs> no, don't. It's just that you know people need that. People need us to see the possibilities, not among other things. You know, uh-huh. It is. It is. Um, you know, it's easy. No, it's not easy. I think it's harder to not be optimistic. It's there's just more weight involved. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Noam Chomsky said, you know, big social change political change it comes about through mass movements it doesn't it's not led by strong people and politicians and uh, uh, we really need a strong mass movement to turn things around uh, and uh, yeah we'll see uh, what will happen but there's stuff in uh, in play now that is different from anything that happened in the prior uh, extinction, since it's going much faster. Oh yeah, our essence is uh, is um, you know is is uh, it can't be killed. It's unborn. It's undying. Yeah, uh, but yeah. Um, uh, we always want to uh, preserve and. And help and do our best and get, yeah. you know, uh, we want to reduce suffering. We want as, we want, uh, as little harm as possible. Uh, you know, we want to do our best. So I'm in, I'm in favor of, of any activity that helps, uh, uh, keep the human race going, uh, and reduces suffering. Of course. Yeah, well, you do. So, well done. Ha! Well done. <laughs> I can't do nothing. I, uh, 
Uh, it's yeah, a- you do. You, you know, you're you're interested in this stuff, and you're sharing this interest and appreciation with a hell of a lot of people. And uh, you know, I prefer the local approach, but I applaud people that are are, you know, uh, creating creating avenues of interest or energy or inspiration. You know, yeah. I, could, I could take somebody like Peter Coyote and I think, well, you know, he does the, you know, the podcast or whatever, and hundreds of people listen and appreciate this, that, or the other. And I, you know, I'm more interested in a conversation than I will have with two dozen people over the next several years. Yeah. That interests me more. That's just yeah. how I am. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, uh, there's no sense in my being um, critical. Yeah, and uh, those those impulses, uh, those are things that I'm I'm interested in. Yeah, you know, I'm really interested in my self limiting behavior, and yeah. I'm amazed that in fact, uh, sitting beyond our all our, our every device uh, massages these areas and gives us latitude to uh, expand our appreciation. Yeah, uh, you know something I do on the local level is I go to poetry slams. Uh, I can't imagine what living in these, you know, in the in, in in these multiple worlds is like. Even though, I mean, San Francisco is, you know, everything under the sun uh, is here. But they are, uh, as you might well rem- remember and imagine, they're all, you know, they're all up to stuff. Uh, we have, you know, uh, we have uh, overwhelming washes of of. Of, of young people and money and and uh, transformation of the cityscape and uh, incredible suffering on the streets. You yeah, know, the homeless, the yeah. homeless, and the and the addictions are running rampant. I mean, I used to go to Glide. I spent some time singing there mm. at, a, at a period of time. So going down Eddy Street. You know, through the tenderloin, uh, you know, you see people on the street, but they seem to be like sort of out there, you know, strutting their stuff or doing whatever they're doing. Now, you know, they're tense. They're, you know, people uh, unconscious, you know, sprawled in their debris um, and every form of you've seen the wire. Yeah. Yeah, well, absolutely. It's so different, except maybe even more depressing in in the sense that the the suffering is more palpable, yeah, than even, even the you know hamster town Hamsterdam or whatever they used to call that place where they rounded up all the folks and said this is free zone you can sell do whatever you want to here yeah that was a great idea you, you don't as long as you don't kill each other we're going to leave you alone yeah so yeah. Um, you know I've always been very interested in you know the black community and grew up in Chicago and and felt a lot of interest in you grew up in Chicago yeah south side you grew up in the south side of Chicago yeah well good lord you know I asked you where were you born you said San Francisco you you didn't New Mexico how long were you in Chicago well I we uh, we moved there when I was less than a year old my uh, (laughs) folks My folks uh, moved to Chicago. My dad got a job running a paint factory there. And so they spent the next 20 years or maybe so, something like that, in Chicago. But they but they kept saying, well, Chicago is OK, but it's no San Francisco. Well, that's no attitude. You know, there's plenty of great things about Chicago. Yeah. Uh, and, but and wait, you said you were on the south side? 
Yeah, yeah. Not in the ghetto. Yeah. Uh, very big, very big uh, dichotomy. You know, they, they, they put up these expressways to define the territory. But in the years that I was in the process of leaving, I left for school when I was 18, obviously. And by the time I had graduated in four years, um, my neighborhood, my folks had already left and moved to South Dakota. And uh, mm. my neighborhood changed from uh, pretty, you know, pretty nice residential working class mix uh, to all black. Pretty much in those days, they had a lot of, you know, a lot of rampant fear and blockbusters and redlining and all the, the reason, all the things that contribute to urban chaos and and uh, controversy. Mm. Just mm. the beginnings of it. They, my old neighborhood is a place called Roseland. And is now known as Trigger Town, so mm. so it goes. Mm. Where'd you go to college? I went to Harvard. Harvard, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I yeah. didn't realize you're a Harvard guy. My yeah. God, well, no wonder yeah. your dick ordained you. Uh, well, I didn't think he. Uh, well, you know, he 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 was impressed with that kind of stuff. <laughs> but uh, but uh, uh, he didn't graduate, so you know he, he he took it too seriously, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's an old dropout. You know, he got out of the draft like a yeah. lot of us did by by uh, playing a role that uh, made them feel he was unfit. <laughs> Yeah, well, I got the Navy to declare me psychologically unsuitable, but I was at Navy OCS. Oh, really? Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, was that a plan you had? No, that was a spontaneous reaction to being in the wrong place and yeah. realizing that I didn't, care. I didn't I was not at all concerned about the consequences. I mean, they could well have imprisoned me. But I wasn't concerned about that. I just was clear I was not going to be going to Vietnam anytime soon. Yeah. And fortunately, if I'd been, a, you know, if I'd been drafted out of a, a draft board on the south side with a lot of the, the black guys that became cannon fodder in Vietnam, uh, nobody would have listened to me for a minute. But because I was at Novi, Navy OCS in Newport, Rhode Island, um, uh, happened to have a Navy shrink who decided that there was no point in the Navy ruining my life if I was so compassionate about this thing, I probably am not suitable. So that was ah. a nice resolution. I got a letter from an from a recently retired army psychiatrist saying that uh, but that uh we set him up. We set him up. I knew this gay guy uh who hung out on the hate picking up uh <laughs> homeless boys who'd walk by <laughs> I'd go visit him and sit and talk. And uh he said, "Oh, I can. I'm. He 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 helped me uh, uh, hatch a plan to get a letter from his friend. Uh, it was a family friend, and he said, you know, that guy knows that I'm, a, you know, total homosexual. There wasn't the word gay then, um, so I'll send him to you. I'll send you to him and say that you and I are very close, and just go over there and don't say much. I'm a little confused or something. Yeah." But the guy gave me a letter saying I was uh, uh, a uh, schizophrenic uh, homosexual. So one other thing. 
Oh, yeah, a drug addict. With uh, leadership qualities, and by no means should I be allowed in military service. <laughs> that was great. Huh. Well, um, Harvard, what'd you major in? Economics. Really? My, my. I was influenced by my uh, my uncle, is uh, my my mother's sister, my, my my mother's brother, who was this big political mover and shaker, and uh, he spent half of his time in Washington D.C. and half of his time in Seattle, and I thought, well, he works on big interesting problems. His deal was public and private water power, so I think that's what I'd like to do, not knowing anything. And so, you know, you got to, you got to, no, you don't have to, but it's uh, a simple, in the context I was in, I had to say I was going to be studying something or other. So that was that. But I didn't realize until I I got out of school that I was really much more interested in literature than I was in economics. (laughs) Well, you don't need to go to school to be into literature, though. No, not at all. Not at all. It's just the late bloomer. And uh, after I was uh, declared psychologically unsuitable, I realized that my brilliant career was definitely going to be having some adjustments. Uh-huh. And I already, I was well on my way to, you know, four years of travel and basically living in communities. Mm. What did you do first there? And after I got out of school? Yeah. Oh, I went to work in a motorcycle shop in Alston, Mass. Uh-huh. And from there, I think we came then to San Francisco, and I lived in San Francisco for a year. And wait, then wait, you I said we. Were you with Mimi? Uh, no, no, no. I was traveling with some people from Cambridge. Uh-huh. These are people I knew from school. Yeah. So all four, I think four or five of us came out, or maybe six of us came out to California more or less at the same time. I came out in a Econoline van, 144 cubic inch. Uh, van used, very well used, and um, we were towing three motorcycles. <laughs> so that was an adventure, and then we got here, and the truck caught fire in Pinole, but we made it somehow. Wow. Was that 68? That's right. And then I lived in the Mission District for a year, and then I and uh, some of the same folks went to South Dakota where my parents had just bought a place in the Black Hills, and we we joined them and worked on the place, and I spent the winter there winterizing it. Hmm. Hmm. Did your uh, Harvard education help you with your uh, with your lifetime of construction work? <laughs> uh, I don't think I mentioned my degree to anybody in the construction world very often. Sometimes a <laughs> Sometimes a client would be interested in my background, and then I would confess. Uh, but no, the thing that the thing that made construction possible is I had the great good fortune of early on. Uh, I don't come from the trades, you know, so I didn't grow up like Ken, right? With with a familiarity and a saturation in a lot of things that you really need to know in terms of skills, not just in building, but in lots of things. And uh, so uh, interestingly enough, when Mimi and I were starting a family, 
a young lady showed up at our door. I think she was 14 years old. And she wanted to know if we could use a babysitter. Hmm. She lived in the neighborhood. Her parents were hippies. She more or less raised her brothers and sisters, her sister and brothers, and also babysitted for us on the side. So this woman, eventually, I hired her to be my office manager. And uh, she worked with me for 25 years. My, my. That's interesting. Hmm. Uh, Great. A great person. A true bodhisattva. Hmm. And uh, she was just one of these inherent Irish, inherently smart, totally capable, able to roll with anything, uh, gifted, handling, you know, excited or cranky people. Hmm. And so that... She handled so much of what was necessary to be handled because, you know, construction on any scale at all is a paperwork-intensive business. Mm -hmm. And so I was free to do what I needed to do to get more work. That's great. Are you doing any now, any construction now? I I consult only uh, and only because the only consulting I'm I'm doing is for the Dolphin Club. And I've been... Huh. I've been swimming there for 30, 35 years or more, and the place has a, about 75 or more years of deferred maintenance. <laughs> so we're, plan- <laughs> we're planning on, you know, renovating all the infrastructure and putting some foundations under part of the building and upgrading the systems, you know, life safety, elevator, climate control, uh-huh. function galley, all those things that make it, you know, good for another 150 years. Uh, did you uh, run into any of uh, the friends of uh, any any other people you knew there? Like Reb used didn't Reb used to? Oh yeah, oh, Reb, Reb used to be, but he never was. He never was uh, what I would call a, a real uh, committed member. Yeah. What about you know in the same, yeah in the same no. that people relate to Zen Center? You know, some people just want to be hanging around the edges, and some people willing to get right into it. Right. I was I wasn't interested in you know the the politics or the board or anything, but I was interested in the in the in basically the family way. It took me a decade to realize that just going there and swimming is only part of what's happening, uh-huh. and that there's a culture of people that like to row and swim and hang out and you know swap stories and who knows what go sailing together or rowing or mm-hmm. whatever people do on the water. And so getting to know some of these people has been, uh, you know, a real comfort. I went to a memorial service yesterday for a guy that probably had been there, you know, been around in the in the community for 50 years, a former San Francisco cop mm. who, among his other uh, attributes, the one story he told me that really impressed me was he was in the Bayview. Uh, and during all his time as a police, he never once fired his weapon. Ah, uh, that's kind of good. Place. That's good. Wow. Wow. Uh, you know, D- uh, Diane, Diane has right. a uh, cousin who became a, a, a Santa Rosa policeman. Oh, yeah. And uh, he's killed two people there. And he they traumatized the heck out of him. Both times he was forced, you know. Uh, by 
you know, one guy was stabbing him in the face with a screwdriver. It was no need to. It was just, you know, it's a guy who didn't want to pay his bill at a service station. And the other guy was coming at him and another cop uh, with something and uh, wouldn't wouldn't stop, you know. Uh, but, you know, but what impressed me ab about that is um, uh, it wasn't like in the movies or on TV. I mean, he was greatly affected by it. And, you know, he gets time off. And, you know, after the second one, he just moved to a desk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, um, one of the things that I'm doing a little bit of these days uh, is spending time at San Quentin. Yeah, wow. And that's a revelation. Oh, um, you know, admittedly a very select group. The Buddha Dharma Sangha that Lee uh, DeBarro started uh -huh. years ago ah. still continues. Wonderful. Uh, and meeting some of these people you would never imagine. I mean, they're violent offenders. I'm sure they all have some, you know, some history there, but um, it's not accidental. But uh, the level of interest and attention and sincerity is they're the most engaged audience, if you want to call them yeah. just an audience, yeah. that I speak to. And, you know, I yeah. occasionally have talks about Suzuki or whatever there. And uh, it's, it's just really an extraordinary thing to get to know some of these folks. I went there once. Uh, uh -huh. There was a woman named, oh, God, yeah. a long time ago. She was... Uh, uh, Francine Bushilowski. That's right. She took me in there. And you know what was interesting? We went in, in her, with her Volkswagen, and she went in to an office to go through security and came back and we drove the Volkswagen and we could have brought machine guns in there. <laughs> right. Uh, but getting through the gate into the actual lockup, you've got to go through a, a two-way gate. Yeah. At least the way we go. And you've got to be walking in, you got to hold up your driver's license and they, and then you lock the, the the outer gate behind you before they release the inner gate so you can go through. They have plenty of time to check you out. Yeah. Uh, Lou Richmond and I went with her once. And, you know, I thought, I thought these guys, uh, they're no bullshit there. They are sincerely interested in, they're not interested in dabbling. Uh, they have very, very difficult lives here. Uh, and um, they were, you know, and I've heard it from other people who work with people in prison is the, the level of sincerity uh, and, you know, uh, is, is uh, hard to match. Well, the thing that for me is so striking is the temperament of some of them. I mean, you know, you would just not, it just wouldn't occur to you meeting these people in a different context, anything about their history. I mean, yeah. some of them seem so literally a demure or unassuming or um, intelligent in it's just, uh, you know, it's just another example of the world's turned upside down. 
Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We know so little about each other in some ways. We're, you know, so busy making big assumptions and reinforce, reinforcing those assumptions that it's amazing that we can do anything. Yeah. That's what uh, Huey Newton talked about in, in uh, how it's reinforced. How once, once the teachers get it in mind, you're a bad boy, you know, it's just like they already know it before you go into the class. And, yeah. Well, um, uh, I talked to some of my more conservative friends, and one of the initial responses, or maybe real strong assumptions, is, uh, well, whoever you're talking about, uh, I'm sure they really deserve to be there. This is just a you know bedrock right. position, right? Uh, and I'm not trying to second guess the system or make any claims other than my experience of these folks as people is striking and uh, enlivening I feel always uh, mm. grateful for having had the opportunity just to spend a little time talking with them mm. yeah yeah well um I read George Bernard Shaw's The Crime of Imprisonment when I was in high school or around there, around when I graduated from high school. And I, uh, when I met Jerry Brown at Tassajara when he came in 75, he was governor-elect, I gave him two books. I gave him Smallest Beautiful and I gave him... Uh, Kind and Usual Punishment by Jessica Mitford. Uh, it's about, you know, the prison system in California and especially about the un indeterminate sentences and determinate sentences and stuff. There's a, to me, nobody should be in prison who's not dangerous. There's a lot of people in prison for drugs and, you know, uh, I knew a big black guy. They got 10 years uh, for having sex with a 15-year-old. And hmm. she testified that she seduced him. And it didn't right. help him. Uh, right. And he went to San Quentin. Yeah. And uh, yeah. he was a harmless person. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but... And I'm against Trump going to prison or anything. Everybody always wants to throw everybody in jail. I think he could be uh, uh, cleaning highways uh, or something, you know. Yeah, I think trash collection would be good. <laughs> yeah, trash collection. Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't think he's ever going to – I don't think they're ever going to get him. People, I've been watching for – it's like – it's like a decade now of, of you know, they're just about the to get him. Done. Huh? Yeah. I say the Teflon done. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But well, it's, a, you know, big shots. It's really hard to get big shots in America. They have the same problem with the mafia dons. Right. You know? Um, but he's a unique case. Uh, you ever do uh, Tony Klein? I knew Tony Klein, yeah. He just retired recently from 42 yeah, yeah. years on the bench. What about one him? Of, uh, 
one of the one of my buddies inside, one of the more articulate and interesting of them, knows Tony Klein by name because he is the person been more proactively involved in trying to push against the tide of longer sentences, which, of course, the prison guard association has been advocating all along. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, ouch. Yeah. And that's, you know, uh, I remember talking to Tony when he was Brown's legal, he was Brown's legal guy for both yeah, terms both, or both something. Brown, and he, sure. you know, he had an old history of being, of being a left wing lawyer. And, uh, but, yeah. you know, he'd, he'd, um, he'd realized that a lot of people should be in prison <laughs> there. And, and that, that was a big thing in the Brown administration was, you know, building more prisons, not building more prisons, what, you know. Uh, right. But, um, yeah, it's tough. And, uh, you know, I talked to Brown about it in Oakland, uh, about the war on drugs and you know, how hopeless it was. He said, well, we've guys, we got guys out here with, you know, Uzi selling drugs on the corner. We got to do something about them. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. Yeah. Hmm. But we'll be able to, I don't know if it's going to see any improvement, but we'll see the, the you know, we'll see the story unfold as it continues to, you know. It uh, didn't surprise me that uh, Newsom voted down the uh, injection site deal. The what? A safe injection site are one of the latest things in San Francisco. Uh-huh. Too many people are dying of fentanyl overdoses. Yeah. So we want to, we want to give them opportunities to be, uh, in a, in a, in a clean setting where we can monitor the kind of stuff that they're injecting. So maybe it won't kill them. Or if they do start to OD, then we can apply the appropriate remedy so that they at least won't die. Yeah. And everybody that's, you know, studied it says this is probably a positive. Yeah. Uh, Newsom, you know, Newsom might be the next democratic, uh, presidential nominee. Yeah. Do you, what do you think about that? Oh, I don't know of anybody more likely, but I, I don't spend a lot of time studying the question. Yeah, I don't either, but it seems to me what little I know, and I, I avoid news as much as I can. I avoid uh-huh. American news. Uh, yeah. I avoid news in general, but the only news we watch here is occasional Al Jazeera, which is really good world news. But... Oh, yeah. um, uh, uh, it seems to me uh, that he he might be a, a good candidate for the Democrats to run. Yeah, I think it would be pretty good. And the the Democrats right now seem like they got a little bit of a wind, uh, some wind on their back, uh, at their back, uh, because of the over overreach of the um, the um, anti-abortion movement and the fact that there's so many yahoos that the Republicans split up, but it looks like we might beat more than a few of them, at least for the Senate. Yeah, for the Senate. Uh, the, the, uh, I, I checked 538, you know, uh, uh, Nate 
Silva's uh, statistical oh, yeah. site. I, I've never gotten. I've never gotten into that. Oh, that's the. I just look at everything statistically. Uh, <laughs> after uh, uh, and. Uh, the last I saw, but I don't look at it much because I don't like to think about that stuff. You know, it doesn't help anything. So maybe two months ago or a month ago, maybe a month ago, I looked at his site and they were giving the, the, the Democrats a 52% chance of, uh, of having, no, uh, a 52, uh, it was somewhere around 52% chance of having 52 senators, but it might have but so that's good. They're giving them a seventeen percent chance of keeping the house. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I don't know, but you know there is the, there is the wild card of uh, you know just the the craziness of uh, uh, one second. Over- one second, uh, our uh, housekeeper wants to say something to me. Yeah, you're doing too, my dear. Yeah, Trimikasi, say you look belong on it. Okay, yeah. Uh, I'm back. Uh, what, what language is that? Indonesian. Okay. Uh, she she uh, wanted to pay the gardener, and she said, "Is this money for the gardener?" And I said, "Yes." I I apologize for not telling her before I came up here. Uh, I'm on the second floor. Uh, okay. Anyway, she's the whole place will come crumbling to the ground without her. Uh, That's good. She's wonderful. I love Mm -hmm. the people here. Uh, Uh uh, I don't care. Muslim, Hindu, anything. Anyway, uh, uh, well, you know, people don't understand statistics. They'll say, they'll say, uh, Nate Silver was wrong, you know. He said, but they don't do it with his sports statistics. He says, Teams that have a 17% chance to win a game, according to everything we know and can put in, they win 17% of the time. <laughs> and so uh, the uh, statistical approach is, is not, you know, it's pointing out its odds, you know. So they gave Hillary Clinton, a, I think, a 73% chance of beating Trump. But, uh, you know, uh, Not so, that day of- yeah, well, uh, um, the uh, it was really the they said there only one. There's all these factors. It, it seemed like everything uh, that they could have uh, underestimated was. Uh, but the, the one the, the he said there was only one factor by itself that threw it to Trump and that was the 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 FBI guy his uh, you know having the press conference two weeks before the election uh, saying uh, that uh, uh, they were going to what's his name Cole Cole Comey you know the head of the FBI then yeah Uh, yeah uh, saying they were going to reopen investigation into Hillary Clinton. Uh, they found another uh, server or something. That lost her three yeah. points. That lost her three points right there. And uh, um, anyway, uh, but um, 17% chance there. Yeah. 
that that, that happens. He's at basketball games, you know, you'll go in. And uh, uh, horse races, you'll see uh, 60 to 1 odds against horse win. But it only happens, he said, about one out of 60 times. <laughs> and he says, yeah, he says, would you get on a plane that had a 17% chance of crashing? <laughs> when I was in grammar school, I, I ran across a book. I think it was grammar school. might have been junior high, whatever. Uh, but the title was How to Lie with Statistics. Uh-huh. So... Um, it pointed out a few of the, the, the rather um, frequent and consistent dodges that various folks, including you know, just regular newspapers, depending on their points of view, of course, employ all the time uh, to make the points that they want to make. So Yeah, well, that's uh, the, the misuse of statistics. But, um, you know, they say you can prove anything with statistics, it's easier to prove anything without statistics. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's very hard. That poor people, it's so easy to confuse and mislead people. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing yeah. how how gullible so many people are. And just it's just amazing, isn't it? Yeah, well, one of the things that I remember from Suzuki that really strikes me is he talks about people who don't practice, uh, and he says, without knowing it, what they do comes out of fear. Mm. And uh, then he goes on to say, and something will be lost for them. Well, he experienced his whole country going totally crazy. but Yes, he did. It it wasn't like everybody believed everything. It's just a culture where you don't question it. You don't disagree with the the you know or whatever with yeah. how the flow, how things are going, what the, those above you say or do. Um, uh, anyway, well, look, Peter, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's great. I, I um, and I too, I'd like to stay in touch, of course. And I'll write you whenever I have a, a thought or a question that seem might be either interesting or you'll you'll be helpful with. I did read the Padua book. No kidding, no kidding. What did you think of that? Oh, he's talking about David Padua's uh, book. Uh, he came out with uh, earlier this year, the Tetralemma, and. He said Ron Ash wrote it, but he didn't keep it secret who he was. It's sort of strange. But uh, anyway, it's a very interesting book. Uh, and we talk about him in it a little bit here. Yeah, you know, it's a nice story. It's a nice adventure tale. And actually, I also, you know, it's not what I would call Pilgrim's Progress. You know, he's interested in all this stuff and he gets around and has marvelous connections and you know, talks to the high the high lamas and, and does wonderful things. But actually the story, when I compare the way I feel after reading that book and the way I feel after reading Suzuki, just a very different kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. There is a, there is a, there is a headiness and a... No kidding. <laughs> a, you know, a kind of a, 
Um, I, I guess I would, I don't know how to, in a sense, do justice to my feeling because they're not fully formed thoughts at all, but it, uh, there's there's something uh, missing, or there's no lightness, and there's not much humor. There's a, it's just kind of an adventure story, and you know what a wild life he's led. I'm you know more power yeah. to him. Yeah, uh, and I you know his generosity uh, uh, must be you know quite substantial, and you know you, there's a little bit of envious. You know he got lots of women, and I'm happy for him and happy for that. <laughs> um, he. Uh... Uh, it, 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 he was extremely helpful in Zen Center by Tassahara. Ri yeah. Richard Baker took Suzuki to the East Coast and to meet people to try to raise sure. money for Tassahara. And we had a $45,000 payment coming up three months. That's, you know, December, January, February, March. Right. Three months after our 20000 or $22,000 down payment, right? And so he took, it, he took Carlson to the East Coast. I mean, he took uh, Padua to the East Coast. And Padua had, um, had uh, been involved with uh, a company you probably read about that uh, uh, sold... Uh, it sold out to Xerox, and he was close with Chester Carlson, who was right. a uh, um, a philanthropist. You know, the inventor of Xerox, and uh, and and who uh, w was a very good person, really interested in in Buddhism and in you know uh, he, he was sort of a very quiet philanthropist. Well, he he. David Padua facilitated uh, Dick Baker and Suzuki going to meet Chester Carlson, who was the major donor for buying mm -hmm. Tassahara. Um, and uh, and he gave some himself. Uh, sure. But he's, he's, he's a little tighter with money. That, uh, maybe he didn't have the the enormous amount Carlson had, but he seems to have plenty. Uh, he's donated to, listen, I never, ever expected David to donate anything to Cuke Archives. Uh, but he has. Nothing, nothing uh, big, but I, you know, I, I, I know him. I've, I've, I drove him from Boulder to Gary Snyder's house once, and I, I tend to visit with him. Uh, when I'm there, are although he's, I, he's in New York or is he in Colorado? He's in Santa Fe. Oh, he's now in Santa Fe, huh? Yeah, he he was in Boulder when they had this uh, recombinant DNA, uh, you know, Genetech type thing lab. He took me through it. It was like mm. you know, uh, you had to go through an airlock. With mm -hmm. with stainless steel floor and ceiling with with uh, holes in them that you know blew air through and everything. You had to get sort of purified before you went in. And there were all these guys in their lab coats and petri dishes. And uh, I think they developed something. I just remembered uh, that was uh, made uh, 
a type of carrot that was sweeter than usual, and he sold it to McDonald's for $30 million or something like that. I mean, that's an old old memory. But, you know, he's a brilliant this, this, guy. This is, this is like agribusiness on steroids. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a brilliant guy, uh, and he, he, he hung this, out. This is part of... This is part of Padua's scene. This is Padua I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. And and uh, you know he hangs out with uh, people at the Santa Fe Institute, which is uh, chaos theory physics. And uh, uh, you know I don't even pretend. I, I'm not even interested in understanding. I wouldn't even begin to try to, inter- to understand any of the things he's into and his son visited me here and i said when i'm with your father i listen (laughs) and we but we get along really well but uh Mm -hmm. i'm i'm not like that man i'm not even i don't even want to understand anything anymore you Mm -hmm. know yeah you know what i mean yeah uh there's too much to understand and i had a lifetime of understanding some things and now I'm just ha- happy, like Katrinka says, uh, I'm into the chop wood, carry water phase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, um, I was reading the uh, the newsletter from uh, Bill Kwong's place today. Yeah. And they've got a quote from Suzuki that speaks to that. Um, which is, you know, the, you know, Padua has not, not, has made a fortune and created a life, uh, using, you know, this rather extraordinarily incisive, uh, intelligence and yeah. a kind of creativity and chutzpah that, uh, has you know rewarded him, and he has spread some of that bounty. And you know he is he is a patron. This is a, you know this is this is a well known role um, and a creator. And uh, you know this is this is the this is the American dream personified. And it's uh, you know it's it's quite terrific. I went and visited uh, with Paul Disco last week. Very cool. That scene of his in Oakland, you've seen it, I imagine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just unbelievable. You know, and, and you know, every everywhere you turn, there's another manifestation of his insatiable kind of creativity and energy. His body is a complete wreck. You know, yeah. he, he, uh, uh, he now uses a walker with wheels and, you know, brakes and such. But. Into as late as recently as last year, getting around that compound, he would be pushing a uh, a um, um, a grocery cart. Mm. Uh, his explanation was he'd rather be mistaken for a homeless person than a crippled person. <laughs> I got a call, Paul. I talked to him periodically. Uh, yeah, and I've put it up. You know, uh, I just. Last night at midnight, and I like to be asleep by 11, at midnight I finally sent in all the files for the audio book for Thank You and Okay. And it's just months mm-hmm. of work. Uh, uh-huh. 
and uh, uh, you know, there's there's other things I have to do. I mean, there's it's you know endless, but uh, I have a, a period now. Uh, I want to finish Tassahara Stories, a book I've been working on for years, uh, but I don't want to start back into it until October. There's thing, and one of the things on my list is to call Paul and have a nice long talk with him. We do that periodically. You know who I'm reading, who I really like, Joko Beck. Oh yeah, boy, I hear that a lot. People really well, liked her. Well, have you read any of her stuff? No. Okay, Every Day's Then. Yeah, it's the book. And then her daughter has she's passed, but her daughter collected a bunch of her other talks called Ordinary Wonder. Mm-hmm. They're both just you know outstanding. It's interesting to me, I believe, you know, she was one of the real foundational uh, students of Maizumi. Yeah. And although Maizumi, you know, kind of blew up the situation that he created to some degree. Yeah. uh, A lot of his descendants, you know, like uh, the folks up at Great Vow, are fantastic teachers. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting, too. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I don't understand, but it doesn't look to me like, you know, the Dharmadhatu lineage. And the only thing I get is secondhand on Tencho through uh, Rick Levine. doesn't sound very good. Yeah. Yeah, they're having trouble. A lot of good people in that, though. Oh, uh, I'm sure they're great. Just that, you know, lineage, man, is what I'm thinking. How do you, how do you, how do you create and sustain a culture? Is, is really the question, uh, but I'm not trying to be dismissive of all the stuff I know nothing about. Yeah. Uh, well, they, you know, there's so much, it's so fancy, and there's so much to believe, and, uh, and there's all this, like, guru wor- worship, um, and, you know, investing so much in who the, the guru is, uh so they they crash heavy when the guru crashes, and so yeah. So I say, well, what did he do? And they can't tell me anything. I said, well, that's not as bad as his father. <laughs> well, that's true, but for whatever reason, you know, I, I mean, it, it just seems like um, Trungpa was able to transcend uh, a lot of the a lot of the. Uh, a lot of the damage he created. I mean, you don't hear too much about the suffering that he created. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that, you know, Suzuki was quite content to, to you know, give him, give him uh, excellent props despite everything else. But then yeah. on the other hand, after, you know, my own whatever... Uh, devotion or appreciation of the 12-step world, one other way of saying is that, you know, he lived and died like any other drunk. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that, but that, you know, that's ridiculous because it in no way describes what I, what all was going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was the absolute worst type of alcoholic. And, uh, but I, I called him an alcoholic and crooked cucumber, and they said, hey, 
you're not a doctor. You can't diagnose him. I said, all right, I'll change it. So I changed it to heavy drinker. And they were very pleased. Uh, but, <laughs> um, and, uh, but, you know, they, he, he couldn't stop. Nobody could stop him. He was devoted. You know what he was like? He was like Nicolas Cage in that movie. Uh, uh, Even Las Vegas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was a great movie. I saw it with Elon and she hated it. But yeah, I, well, I probably would too. <laughs> it was, it was just, uh, it was, you haven't seen it? No, I think I saw it, but it just didn't stay with me. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing. You know, what stays with me and what doesn't? Yeah. Because I'll say, you know, I, I've said it and I think I kind of believe it. I don't know if it's actually true, but I remember almost nothing that Richard said. Mm-hmm. To me, it's just very interesting. Whereas things that, you know, I've written or read in Suzuki are, you know, they're just with me. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different, I, I mean, I, I'm convinced it's a very different aesthetic. It's a very different view of the world. It's a very different kind of activity. Oh, yeah. So Peter and I talked and talked about a bunch of stuff and, uh, so um, that I just cut out, um, but he said some something about uh, running into Kelly, uh, my oldest son, that I thought would be neat to include. I run into him. I, you know, he recognized me before I recognized him. I was it was great. I've always had great contact with him. Always, oh, that's you know, good. He's, he's a he's a gas. He's really great fun. When he was like five or six, we went to the airport to pick up somebody or other, and we're talking, and this guy next to next to us looks at us like, you know, what's going on here? Because, you know, he was so clued in and he was, you know, uh, he, you know, I mean, you could just say, you know, talk about anything and you know, he's right there. He's, you know, keep up with anything kind of guy. And uh, it was just, uh, you know, just one of the moments that really stayed with me that this is, this is somebody that, you know, will always be a joy to be around. Just a couple of days after Peter and I had this conversation um, Daya was in town for a lay transmission ceremony from T.S. Droser, and Kelly came from Spokane to help her out for four days. And he's super busy with his uh, uh, spirit pruners uh, business in uh, Spokane. And they um, had dinner together at Peter's, and they all wrote me about it and said it was great. Yeah, wish I'd been there. That was neat. Oh, yeah, Laura Burgess was at that dinner, too. Hmm. I think uh, we should give her a call soon. Anyway, look, we're going, now we're going, we can't stop. We need, we need professional help. Yeah, we, we gotta take, we gotta take a break here, here, David. We yeah. We can go for three hours. That's excessive. No, no. <laughs> Okay. Well, David, my, my, my best to you. It's, uh, it's really uh, great fun to catch up, and uh, um, I'll look forward to continuing, you know? This yeah. Is great. Yeah. Uh, it's been fun. Uh, uh, yeah. And uh, I, I, I've really uh, appreciated being in touch with you, uh, and not just today, but prior days. So, uh what year were you born? 
Uh, I'm the same age as you. I was born February 11, 1945. You were born two days after me. Yeah. So you're older than me. Yeah, I'm two days older than you, and you better keep that in mind. <laughs> That's very <laughs> interesting. Plus, you're from Texas. Yeah, Fort Worth. Yeah. Okay, my love, my love to you and everyone. Yeah, same here. Take care. Sure, good night. And I, Good day. Good day. Thanks a lot, Peter. I appreciate that. Um, may your uh, dharma continue forever. And um, this has been a Duke Audio podcast. I'm D.C. Poobob Duke Audio and Duke Archives coming to you from Sleepy Sanur with Doggy Bandita, Feline Cuchita, and Dear Lovely Kudrinka. And we're wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening. <laughs>